Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Sports, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Keith Rathbone, and I'm coming to you from Sydney, Australia, where I'm a professor, I'm a senior lecturer in history in the Department of History and Archaeology at Macquarie University. And I'm here today speaking with Dr. Karen Carr, who is the author of Shifting Currents, A World History of Swimming, out from Reaction Books in 2022. It's a fabulous read. So if you're listening to this, I suggest you jump online and buy a copy right now. Uh, For those of you who are unfamiliar, Dr. Karen Carr is an Associate Professor Emerita in the Department of History at Portland State University and the author of Shifting Currents, A World History of Swimming, and Vandals to Viscos, Rural Settlement Patterns in Early Medieval Spain. She's also an area specialist in Roman pottery and works at the site at Leptomenus in North Africa. Thank you so much, Karen, for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. Uh, as I mentioned, I, we were talking a little bit beforehand, and I, I had mentioned to uh, Karen that I really love this book, and I read it, and basically, it's a, it's a, it's a big book, and it's a beautiful book, uh, um, but it was such a page turner as well, uh, and I read it in just a day and a half. Um, so I want to know, Karen, um, how you, how you came up with the book, and and uh, you had told me, and <laughs> when we were joking earlier that uh, although the the writing is so easy to read, that it was it was um, a lot of revision to put it together. So can you tell me a little bit about how you developed this project? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, people always start out by saying like, oh, you must be like a super, you must be super into swimming. Like that must be how you came to write a book about swimming because you're, you're probably on swim teams and stuff growing up and you probably like swim every day. And I'm like, no, like actually, I mean, I've always been an enthusiastic swimmer. I grew up in upstate New York where there's plenty of lakes and swimming holes and, you know, I, I swam, but I was never on a swim team and I don't, I swim now, but I don't swim regularly. Um, But I used to run a big history website and I used to write new articles for it every day. I've written over 2000 articles for this website. Um, and one day I thought, what do I write about today? I'm taking the kids swimming later today. They were little like your kids are. (laughs) And I thought, uh, you know, what about swimming? Um, and so usually I would start these articles by reading a little bit, you know, recent articles about the subject and, and, you know, kind of trying to get oriented to what people were saying. And when I started looking, I was like, there's nothing here. There's, there was almost nothing serious written about swimming. There was nothing in the last hundred years that had been written by a historian really looking at all of the evidence. There were books written by swimmers, 
but the history part of those books just repeated the same, you know, stupid cliches over and over. It was all like Julius Caesar was a great swimmer and hero and Leander and, you know, Herodotus about the Persians drowning at Salamis and Lord Byron knew how to swim, but there was never anything else. Like they all repeated the same five things. And I was like, that's not the history of swimming. That's just like, you know, popular history nonsense. So I started to look into it and it just got more and more interesting. And after a couple of weeks, I was like, you know, there's a book in this. I mean, there's like, there's no book for me to read about this. And there's, there's so much to know. And, um, and I realized that it was really helping me with what I actually am interested in, which was not so much swimming as writing history that that fits Roman history into the history of Asia and Africa. Like, you know, if we look at Roman history and we don't only see Europe, how does Roman history look different uh, if we if we take what's going on in Asia and Africa at the same time more seriously. And so this swimming book for me was like a big step along that road of, of looking at Europe from the outside, from a, from not from as if I was a, you know, living in Europe because I'm not living in Europe. Yeah, uh, I'm sorry. I, I was no, going to say, one of the things ahead. I loved about the book is kind of the way in which, at the, from the very beginning, it decenters our geographies, because it it wasn't, um, you know, a, a, although there's a certain focus at times on on Europe, it doesn't it doesn't think about Europe entirely in isolation until much later than um, maybe other works might. It's, it's at the beginning, it's talking about kind of this. Your Asian, Central Asian, um, you know, phenomenon. <laughs> that so I almost had to think of. I mean, it, it it's it's funny because I almost had to like reorient my thinking of the globe in some ways as I'm thinking of the book. I like turning the picture of the world in my head and going, oh yeah, now I see. Like I see that. Um, right. Well, exactly. That's that's really my core purpose in the book is to use swimming to kind of get people to see that they don't have to think of Europe as kind of the special continent separate from all the other continents. Yeah, uh, now, and that we can find out really interesting things about history when we don't do that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it comes through really clearly. I, I, um, I don't know if you want to talk in brief um, or, or just quickly here about, because there is a kind of, um, overarching thread through your book in this tension between uh, swimmers and non-swimmers, indigenous swimming. Um, so, do you want to do you want to just introduce that it, right right here at the sure. beginning? Okay. Sure. Um, yeah, you're right. I mean, this is definitely a book with a thesis. You know, this is not just like and then this happened and then this happened. Right. This is a book with something with an argument to make, and the argument is that the world has been divided apparently since the ice age, since the last ice age. So about 40,000 years ago, uh, into basically swimmers and non-swimmers where swimmers are, 
as you would expect now that I said Ice Age, in the more sort of southern part of the world, mostly in Africa, in southern Asia, in Australia, and in uh, in the Americas, I think uh, really everybody can swim all over the Americas, but it's probably because the people living in northern America moved there after the Ice Age. And so they brought their swimming with them when they when they came. They had been southern people who knew how to swim. And and then there's what the book calls a northern swimming hole, right? There's all the people who stuck out the Ice Age in the north, in Europe and in um, northern Asia. So what's now the USSR? Well, what's now Russia, not the USSR. Uh, what's now Russia and Mongolia, Korea, uh, where people forgot how to swim and not only forgot how to swim, but when they when they came out of the Ice Age and they started traveling around and they saw other people swimming, they were like shocked. They were unhappy. They were like, oh, my God, like, what's this swimming stuff that looks like really weird and and dangerous. And they they persisted through the centuries for thousands and thousands of years. And they still feel today that history, that swimming is, uh, I guess I break it down into four main categories. Swimming is dangerous. Uh, If you think about the amount of, of effort that we put into, you know, insisting that everybody has to learn to swim because of the danger of drowning, Right. That's the main reason we give why children have to learn to swim, because they might drown. Not because it's fun, not because other people are doing it and they'll be left out. Not because it's a good way to cool off. Uh, Just because it's dangerous and you have to know how to swim in case you fall in the water by accident. And so that's the first reason that, that the first complaint that the non-swimmers have about swimming is that it's dangerous. The second one is that it's, you know, immodest. You have to take off your clothes. Oh my God, people see your body. Um, You know, it's very tied up with sex and rape. If you, women, there are all these stories about women going in the water and then being raped in Ovid's Metamorphoses, for example. Um, And, uh, And we still have that today, too. You know, there's all this emphasis on is your body ready to go swimming? Do you have a bikini ready body? You know, people are constantly, oh, I couldn't go swimming like I'm overweight or whatever. I don't have a body that could go in the water. Um, So there's there's still a lot of that, too. Then the third objection that the non-swimmers have is that the gods don't like it. And you might think, well, that one, at least we don't. We don't think that anymore. But the main reflection, the main way that we that people talk about in antiquity, in the Bronze Age, the way people talk about how the gods don't like it when you go in the water, is they say the gods like the surface of the water to be flat with no ripples or splashing. And when you go in the water and splash, the gods don't like it. And we still today, you still see people in interviews all the time saying, for example, that they prefer the brushstroke in England. They say this, they prefer the brushstroke to the crawl because it doesn't splash so much. It's calmer. And you can see that same Bronze Age fear of splashing. And 
Uh, they, the, in the Bronze Age, again, they say one of the things the gods don't like is if you pollute the water, for example, by peeing in the pool, which, again, is still like a major concern, right? There are, I've seen newspaper articles where they're talking about people who won't swim in the ocean because they're afraid that people will have peed in it. And uh, just a few years ago, they caught some guy peeing in the Portland's water reservoir and they drained the entire reservoir because people were so grossed out by it. No. Even though, <laughs> and then and the, the water experts were like, you know, like deer and, and dogs and stuff peeing it all the time, like fish live in it. You know, it's not like, and, but people were so <laughs> upset that they had to drain the entire reservoir and fill it again. Um, so these are things that we still very much have with us. And then the last of the four things is that, that the idea that swimming is for other people. It's something we don't do. It's something foreigners do. It's something that you know belongs to uh, a different society from ours. And that really, a lot of the book is about how we managed to turn that around so that now we imagine that swimming is for white people, for European descended people, and not for everybody else in the world, even though historically everybody else in the world are much better swimmers than white people. Yeah, I, I loved I I loved um I loved the way you were able to kind of trace the the connection between power and, and swimming, but also that for you, swimming meant something really specific. It wasn't just, and you going through these kind of four, four, um, four reasons to be afraid of swimming or to not swim. Like I felt identified <laughs> as, someone who, <laughs> right. as, as someone who grew up in you know swimming and my aunt was an Olympic swimmer and stuff like that. So I grew up swim, you know, um, not swimming competitively, but in the water a fair amount. And, and I now live in Australia, Sydney. It's one of the most swimming mad places around. But that was the exact reason I have my daughter in swimming because it's dangerous because she's going to go with their friends out to the beach. And we kind of continually emphasize this to her. No, you have to, no, you have to go to swimming today because you, when you're older, it's going to, you're going to be out with your friends and you need to know how to swim or else it's dangerous. And I never right. want well, oh, no, you're going swimming because it's fun. <laughs> and she loves it. Right, because we just don't think of it. We don't say because it's fun. That's why you're having swim lessons. Yeah. But I think by your, you... in some ways, by your definition, I would be a kind of almost a non-swimmer or I'd be in that liminal space between knowing how to swim, but not really appreciating the water, being comfortable in it the way that um, you know, indigenous swimmers did. And so I have colonized swimming. <laughs> I was like, oh, exactly. <laughs> and that's, that's kind of my point that in, no. in the end, it's not that Europeans became really comfortable in the water. It's that they made everybody else uncomfortable in the water instead. Yeah. I, and, 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 and I'm, and I, and I've done that. So I, I want to congratulate you by making me really think about it in a different way. Cause I was like, oh yeah. No, I have. I've totally inculcated and spread to another generation <laughs> this, right. this this very um, particular um, logic of swimming. Like, oh, that actually, we just need to swim because it's it's a safety measure, 
you know. Right, but and, if you look at if you start looking at how indigenous people swam, how indigenous Australians swam, but also uh, throughout the Americas and in Africa, in ancient Egypt, uh, in all the places where people didn't stop swimming during the Ice Age but just c- continued swimming, um, it's not a question of safety. They're spending like they're swimming several times a day every day. And they think of it as a social activity, as if you were always going to be saying to your friends, like, hey, after work, you know, meet me at the lake instead of like, meet me at the pub. (laughs) You know, that's that's where people are. That's what people are going to do. Like old people, young people, disabled people, like everybody's going to be down there, you know, hanging out in the water and, and not just hanging out like. When we say we're going to go down to the lake and hang out, we mean on the beach, mostly. Like maybe we're going to go and like swim for a couple of minutes and cool off. And then we're going to go back on the beach and talk to our friends. These are people who are really in the water. They're like swimming out. There's a great story about, um, I can't remember if it's French or Spanish colonizers off the coast of Brazil. And uh, they see these people and they're just kind of hanging out in the water, indigenous Brazilians, like hundreds of feet offshore, like way deep in the water. And they they paddle their rowboat over and they're going to save them. And then the people are laughing at them and they're like, we're not drowning. We're just like floating here in the water. We're fine. We're just hanging out, talking to each other. Uh, You know, we could stay here all day. And, you know, the the Europeans are like, oh, my God, like they just think anybody who's far away from shore in the water is obviously in danger and needs to be saved. I one of the for people who um, who haven't read the book, uh, your book proceeds roughly chronologically. It's a it's a rough chronology because it does jump Mm -hmm. geographically um, in places as you're as you're building your um, building your argument, building your narrative. Um, but one of the things that I found fascinating was just how much evidence there is of that indigenous swimming, like how much of that actually is still out there. And, you know, it, it's not based on, I, I'm glad you also addressed very briefly the kind of aquatic man theory that some people have, <laughs> but you know, that there's actually a huge amount of evidence of people swimming outside of, of this, you know, central Eurasian or Northern Asian landmass for a really long time. And it continues up until the moment of colonization, kind of as a major activity. And you're able to document that like very clearly with um, archaeological right. evidence, text evidence, <laughs> basically. Every, right. every Photographic kind of evidence in the yeah. end, uh, you know, towards the end, there's plenty of photographs of people out there swimming you know, having a good time in in ways that, you know, Captain Cook, when he's first approaching Hawaii, he talks about, you know, that not only are people swimming, but like pregnant women are swimming, women are swimming with like little babies hanging on their backs, in their arms. They're like, you know, their, their three-year-olds are swimming alongside them, like way far away from shore. People are swimming from canoe to canoe across the bay. It's, you know, it's such a necessary social activity, like, I don't know, like driving a car would be for us or something like, you know, it's something everybody has to be able to do. 
Oh, so then let's get to some of the first, um, I guess, Europeans, if you want to say, in our story, um, which the, the, and they come in for a good amount of time. You, you spend a lot of time kind of discussing the Greeks and the Romans because there is kind of a turning point um, at that moment. So I guess, could you talk to us a little bit about, you know, wh what kind of swimming is there in the Greek and Roman world? How, how does so this it change? Yeah. Um, th this, I think, it brings up a whole new thing that we haven't even, that I didn't really introduce before, but I think is really important to understanding what happens, which is that um, at a certain point, if you look at images and accounts of um, West Asia and Europe during the Bronze Age, like nobody's swimming. If people fall in the water, they're drowning. There are lots of images of people falling off boats, uh, but all of them are drowning after they hit the water. In the, for example, the frescoes from uh, Thera from Santorini, uh, they uh, in Minoan frescoes, in Mycenaean images. If people fell out of the boat, they're in a bad way, like nothing good, right? But the first instances we have of European swimming. Uh, comes the same time as West Asian swimming, actually, around the uh, beginning of the Iron Age. So there are, there are some, a few indications from, from just at the end of the Bronze Age, but really what you see is in the 700s BC, uh, in, the, in the Archaic period in Greece, people are suddenly way more interested in swimming. The first place that will come to mind probably is Odysseus, right? Because Odysseus, after his uh, raft falls apart, he has to swim to get to Nausicaa and the Phaeacians. And uh, granted, he has the help of a magic veil, so he's not completely on his own. But still, you know, clearly he's a strong swimmer. But, uh, but we also see it in, um, there's a vase from uh, Pithecusae, in the Bay of Naples that has a, a painted swimmer on it in a place where normally we just see shipwrecks. Earlier vases have only shipwrecks, but this is the same shipwreck scene, only now somebody's swimming. Uh, we have Assyrian wall reliefs from, um, from northern Mesopotamia, from the Assyrian palaces there that, again, show people swimming. They're using inflated goat skins as flotation devices, but they're swimming. Uh, so all of a sudden there's people swimming, right? Uh, where there had never had been before. And what seems to have happened is that they're really, really eager to imitate the Egyptians because the Egyptians are much richer and more powerful and more sophisticated and just in every way, the kind of people that you would copy. Uh, and so they, they are, they're copying, and if you think about it, they're copying at the same time lots of other Egyptian things. They're copying Egyptian temples and the first Greek temples and Egyptian statues for the first Greek uh, Kuros statues. And the, they're beginning to write on Egyptian papyrus and they're wearing Egyptian linen. And, you know, so a lot of Egyptian things they are getting the alphabet from the Phoenicians, right? There's a lot of sort of Eastern and Southern things are coming to Europe at this time and swimming comes with them. 
But like all those other things that they're getting from the Egyptians, swimming becomes a mark of being upper class. It's upper class to have linen clothing. It's upper class to have uh, your tombstone be a life-size stone statue. And it's upper class to know how to swim. Um, it's upper class to be able to write. Like everything upper class is associated with Egypt and swimming, it just goes along with that. Yeah, I... Uh, I no, please go. Yeah, continue. Yeah. If you, okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So what we, one of the places we see that, and that continues, right? It's not just in the 700s BC, but it's, it's right through, well, it's right through to modern times, right? That we still kind of associate swimming with being rich, being very well off. Um, you know, people have private pools that really shows that you made it. Um, when, when, luxury cars like a Porsche or something want to advertise. They put the car next to a swimming pool and a girl in a bikini because that is a way of signifying wealth and, and being upper class. Uh, and so, and, and Plato, you know, in the, in the 400s, in the 300s BC, Plato says uh, that it's proverbial that someone who is ignorant, lower class, uh, someone you wouldn't want to hang out with, what you say is that they can't read or swim. And that's, that's really interesting. Like we would say they can't read or write. Right, someone who was really lame, really not someone who was of your social class. They couldn't read or write. He says they can't read or swim. Those are the two things that for Plato mark someone being upper class. And that I think is why Julius Caesar, for example, emphasizes his swimming so much. He's always, he's like a terrific swimmer, but you know, he writes his own memoir. <laughs> so he has a chance to, to tell us about it, and he does. He emphasizes that when he's when he's moving around with the army in Gaul, uh, when he sends out scouts to find like the next campsite where the army's gonna gonna stop, if they reach a river, they have to stop and like put up a bridge and stuff in order to get across. But he just swims across, and so he's always getting places before the scouts do because he can just swim across the river. And the if you think back to like the the you know five stupid facts that books on swimming always include, that's basically the list of things that they include are a list of very upper class powerful men who knew how to swim, Byron, Caesar. Um, because the point of that memory of the point of that collection of facts, is to emphasize how you yourself as a swimmer can belong to this very illustrious club of upper-class, sophisticated people. But that's, and that's not how swimming starts at all, right? In Egypt, everybody knows how to swim. In Africa, in Australia, you know, in, in the Americas, like everybody knows how to swim. It's only among the northern non-swimmers that swimming becomes this very upper-class activity. And extremely gendered, as you point out in your book as well. Like it's very, it's very ma masculine in some ways. I I don't know. People always say that, and I don't I don't know that I see that. 
Um, okay. There are plenty of examples from Roman texts of, I don't want to be disagreeable, but there no, are, there are certainly, there are certainly, there are, there are Greek vases that show women swimming. There are Roman texts that talk about women swimming. Ovid has, you know, it's mostly nymphs and things, but there, there are certainly women swimming in the metamorphoses in, um, uh, uh, there's the story of Cloelia who swims across the Tiber uh, to get away from the, she's being held hostage by the Etruscans and she takes all the girls that have, are being held hostage with her and they all swim across the Tiber. And she seems to think all of those girls are going to know how to swim. Um, there's not a lot of gendering. Women typically do know how to swim um, among those heroes that everybody mentions, obviously, there's a lot of gendering. Uh, but in real swimming, not so much. Uh, I think um, even in the 19th century, uh, you know, yeah, Byron knows how to swim maybe before there's a lot of women swimming. But Louisa May Alcott, for example, had swimming lessons. Um, it, you know, it's not at all limited to men. Uh, my my take on it, at least in the reading, was that it was that not that women didn't swim, but that w swimming in the in the northern European context presented particular dangers for women that maybe it didn't um, in indigenous contexts. That it doesn't for men. Sexual violence. Well, there, there's this association with sexual violence and yeah. rape that certainly you know you could imagine must have been discouraging for women. That you know this idea of nudity, and yet. You know, I, I don't know. I mean, people say that, but then, you know, there's uh, Jane Austen going to the beach and going swimming from her bathing carriage. And, and you know, women do seem to be swimming and they're not really being discouraged from it. They're, they're being fenced around with a lot of rules of what they have to wear, which beaches they can go to and stuff. But, but they, they're pretty enthusiastic about going. They're, they're not really being discouraged. I think that the class aspect outweighs the gender, that mm. it's so important to swim to show that you're upper class, that even women have to do it. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I buy it for sure. I, um, I, I think we could talk about this particular point more, but I want to, because there, there's a lot of book <laughs> and I want to, yeah, I want to get out is. of the <laughs> I want to get out of the um, ancient period because, um, you know, part of the narrative of your of your book is that people that swimming isn't something that um, for everyone exists always. Um, people forget how to swim in some ways. Uh, there's all, as you mentioned, always some people who swim, um, and there's that contention between elite and non-elites, and sometimes people who, who need to be around water for work, but. Um, large numbers of people just stop swimming <laughs> again and again. Um, so, yeah. Maybe... So swimming, swimming becomes um, swimming kind of stays marginal enough among the northern non-swimmers that they can stop. Right? It never really becomes the basis of social life the way it is for indigenous people, right? It's not something everybody is doing every day that you would be unable to stop doing. It's more like swimming for us that where you can be like, you know, I, people are always like, 
oh, you know, it's probably been, I don't know, four or five years since I really went swimming, right? It's something that can happen. You're not paying attention and, you know, time goes by and you realize it's been a long time since you went swimming. People typically say in in your sort of traditional history of swimming, they go, well, the fall of Rome, you know, obviously, like, I don't know, Rome fell and everybody had other things to think about and they were all upset about the fall of Rome and so they stopped swimming uh, then. And, you know, Christianity made them all prudish and modest and so they couldn't swim anymore. Uh, that, I think, is not true. I make the argument that we actually have pretty good evidence that Europeans are still swimming into the uh, beginning of the 1200s, so into the late Middle Ages, right? Uh, and then they stop in the course of the 1200s, and we're not really sure why. Uh, I, the book proposes a bunch of different possible reasons. Uh, it may have been colder. We're sort of beginning to enter the Little Ice Age. Uh, so it may just have been cold enough in Europe that people weren't really enthusiastic about going swimming. It might be uh, the drowning of Frederick Barbarossa. Frederick Barbarossa was the Holy Roman Emperor, and he was the most powerful man in Europe for like most of his life, for, for decades. Uh, he was a very, very powerful guy. And he went on crusade and he's, he's going with his whole parade of crusaders uh, right around the border between what's now Turkey and Syria when he drowns suddenly. Uh, and very unexpectedly, he was known to be a very powerful swimmer as befits someone who's a very important elite kind of guy. Um, and let me just say that the, the, the evidence from the first eyewitness accounts makes it absolutely clear that his drowning had nothing to do with his swimming ability at all, but that he tried to ride his horse across an unfamiliar river wearing full armor, and the horse slipped, and he fell off the horse, and he couldn't swim in armor, so he drowned. Uh, but later representations of that drowning in the 1200s, so maybe 50 years later, show him uh, just, you know, swimming in the pool to cool off at lunchtime and unaccountably drowning. And people were really upset about it. Uh, there are many different accounts of it, many different representations. Uh, there are people who say that his the, the crusaders who were following him were so upset that a bunch of them converted to Islam on the spot, uh, which I, I'm not convinced is true either, but, but it just shows how, how upsetting everybody found this drowning. And that, that may have had an influence on people's feeling that swimming wasn't safe. Um, but another possibility, and again, to decenter Rome, to decenter Europe in the uh, history of the world, is that really the most powerful people of the 1200s are the Mongols who are establishing their big empire that reaches from Turkey to China, right, and Kublai Khan in China. And the Mongols, because they come from Central Asia, are not swimmers. There's a, a great thing I think got left in the in the book in the end where the the Lonely Planet Guide to Mongolia 
has a page that just says swimming in Mongolia at the top and then it's just blank. Yeah, that made it in the book. It was, that was very funny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh yeah, right. So the Mongols, like they're, they are not swimmers. And I think in an effort to be cool like the Mongols rather than cool like the Egyptians, people stop swimming. It doesn't seem cool. It seems kind of, you know, like something maybe your grandfather would have done or your great grandfather, you know, it's like if you were out there playing uh, tiddlywinks or something now, I don't know. What's a sport that people don't do anymore? Shuffleboard. <laughs> Shuffleboard. Yeah. Uh, you know, you would, you would feel like, wow, this is kind of retro, but you not like something that you would really want to do. And uh, that, you know, people, again, as when they were, remember, they were adopting all these Egyptian things when they started swimming. When they stopped swimming, they're adopting all these Mongol things. Uh, tons of new inventions are coming out of Central Asia where everybody's much richer than in Europe and more powerful. And they've got buttons and they've got bowed string instruments, the ancestor of the violin and the cello. Um, they've got, oh, I don't have a list in front of me, so I'm not going to try to rattle off a whole lot of them, but there are a steel, um, paper, just a lot of new inventions that are coming out of Asia and reaching Europe about this time. And, uh, I think not swimming is one of those innovations, if you see what I mean, that, you know, just as swimming was something they got from Europe, not swimming is probably something they get from the Mongols. Yeah, I, I mean, I found that an extremely kind of compelling explanation because of the ways in which I think we understand uh, elite um, kind of mimicry, right? So these other people are clearly more um, sophisticated and uh, worldly. Um, then perhaps elites in Europe would copy them. And, and it's not so much maybe that they go, these guys don't swim so that I'm, I'm not going to swim. It could be that. But also they're copying a lot of other things that they are doing. And so that limits the amount of, you know, if you're going to invest time and energy in, in doing a thing, you, you know, you, you want to have a payoff. Well, for- yeah. Well, to take to take a really terrific example, the the Trévisard de Duc de Berry, right? One of the most famous books of the Middle Ages, and one of the most famous pictures in it is the the month of August, right? And in in this picture of the month of August, uh, in the background there are peasants who are harvesting wheat, and they have taken off their clothes and they've gone swimming in the pond. And it's actually the first, it's one of the first uh, images of the, of the breaststroke. Um, and in the foreground are the lords and ladies on horses. And they're all fully dressed on their horses, very elaborate clothing. And they've got falcons on their wrists. They're going out doing something classically Central Asian, right? They're hunting with falcons. Yeah. That's that's a I mean nothing could be more more Mongolian than hunting hunting with falcons. And that for them that's the cool activity and what the peasants are doing is behind the times kind of dumb peasant stuff going swimming. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, 
I mean, I found I found that to be like a very a very compelling a very compelling argument, um, and so we kind of I mean, if we're speeding ahead a little bit, but I do want to get to um, that moment of colonization of European um, expansion, uh, both in the early kind of imperial period, but also then in towards the nineteenth century when you're kind of sketching out how swimming becomes racialized because that's a lot of the story i think people if they read any other histories of swimming it's probably going to be histories of how swimming was racialized in the united states that's a lot of the other literature on swimming um, that's out there and so i was kind of curious because you you tell a much longer story it's not the short story um of, of segregation. Right. I mean, you, you always start with like, there have been, there have been a great number of books written and very good books written about, um, you know, the segregation of swimming pools in the United States and the terrible effect that that had on African-Americans and not just African-Americans, but also Native Americans and Asian-Americans in the United States, right? The enormous problems that this caused, especially for black uh, kids. And uh, and there has been a lot of very good work done on that. But how did we get there, right? How did we get from the Africans are all really good swimmers to the idea that we're going to push them out of the pool entirely? And that's what uh, part three of the book uh, takes a look at. And I think you can see maybe the very beginnings of it at the time in the 1200s, 1300s, where the Europeans are giving up swimming. Um, that it may be associated with the very beginning of the slave trade from Africa, that uh, not so much Europeans yet, but um, Egyptians and Syrians and uh, Iraqis and Iranians are beginning to get a lot of their slaves from uh, West Africa and Central Africa and down the coast of East Africa. And you start to see these people in Islamic sources, in Muslim sources that were written in the late Middle Ages, you start to see them mocking the swimming of these enslaved people, right? You can tell that they're kind of, they're, they're kind of talking like they're praising the swimming, but it also seems like they're dehumanizing these enslaved people by talking about how well they swim. So I think it, it starts there. It starts again outside of Europe in West Asia and Egypt where people are beginning to put down swimming as part of dehumanizing the people that they're enslaving. When Europeans do start to go to Africa themselves in the 1400s, 1500s, 1600s, they are already primed to take that attitude and Boy, do they, they just kind of grab that attitude with both hands and jump right into it. Um, they see, they marginalize black people as black Africans, as subhuman, and therefore it's okay to enslave them. And one of the things that makes them uh, non-subhuman is that they know how to swim. And it's very much this attitude of swimming is something animals can do. Dogs can swim, horses can swim, black people can swim. That, um, that makes swimming into something that if you're a human, if you're really fully human, like you can't be sold into slavery, then you don't know how to swim. 
And if you can swim, that makes it okay to enslave you. And, and, and it's even something which can be seen as a, an advantage because a lot of the early, um, uh, advertisements for selling, uh, enslaved people at auction will mention that they're from an area that's known for its swimming, that they, this is a group of people who are probably very good swimmers. If you need swimmers, say, because you're going to make them be pearl divers in the Caribbean, or you're going to make them, uh, so go into rivers to pull out the stumps to make the rivers navigable in uh, South Carolina or Georgia. Uh, and all of those things were pretty common uses for enslaved people. Uh, then, you know, these are the ones you want. These are ones who are really good swimmers. Um, so it's not that they ignore it, but they make really a big deal of it in order to justify enslaving Africans at first. And I realized that that doesn't answer the question at all. Then it's like, well, they think swimming is, is they think swimming is something Africans do. So how did we get to a point where we're pushing Africans out of the water? And that is, do I want to go there yet? Or do you want to hear about the, the witchcraft floating and ducking stools first? Well, I mean, look, I, my own interest is to move on towards the the to move forward the politics of we'll middle class back to the witchcraft. Swimming, but but if but if if we do or if we don't listeners should know there's a great there's a really great discussion about um witchcraft and punishments and i actually learned a lot through that section because i had very much the you know year 12 understand i mean i'm an, i'm a modern historian i took some work on early modern europe uh in my graduate training but didn't really focus on witchcraft so i still had the idea that witches if they floated they were witches if they <laughs> you, you you point out all the complications of that so um i mean if you want to talk about that let's talk about well, that well I'll, I'll just i just want to put it in here because it belongs here in the story and that's where it is in the book um that their Europeans become so so invested in this idea that water is not for white people and not for um, swimming in, or not for white people to go swimming in, that uh, that they adopt this what it appears to be a really basically a, a Central Asian, a Ukrainian tradition that probably goes back to the Bronze Age of. Uh, taking suspected witches and dropping them in the water to see if they drown. Uh, and the idea is that you don't let them drown, but, um, but if they sink, it shows that they are, uh, they're good, that they're not witches. And if they float, it shows that they're witches because they know how to swim. Right. Uh, but they they make this more difficult by tying them up in like a little ball so they can't actually swim. And that uh, tends to make them float. I guess the way they tie them up, it tends to make them float. They can't dive down into the water to save themselves. Uh, anyway, this becomes kind of a huge public entertainment. And clearly the reason one reason why they do a, a lot is just that people think it's a great way to spend a Saturday afternoon to watch sort of unpopular women being thrown into the water, uh, tied up so they can't swim. Um, but 
Uh, but it also, I think it really reflects this idea that only only foreigners, only Africans, only people who should be enslaved can swim and Europeans absolutely can't. And then to move on, then so how do we get from there to segregated swimming pools? Um, what starts to happen is that as more and more Europeans are colonizing other countries, they start to be like, well, this swimming thing actually looks kind of fun. Uh, you know, they see Captain Cook sees all these people swimming off the coast of Hawaii. The French see the Brazilians swimming off the coast of Brazil. Uh, a lot of it sort of adventurous young people who are, you know, traveling around with Native American guides or, you know, settling in Mexico or in uh, eventually in Australia. They start to get to know a lot of the Native people and the Native people are like, I'll teach you how to swim. And so, you know, gradually it becomes something that the coolest, most adventurous people like Byron know how to do. Benjamin Franklin learns how to swim. Uh, you know, it becomes something that's kind of the cutting edge of the avant-garde. Really cool people do know how to swim again, just like when they were learning from the Egyptians. Um. And then it becomes a little awkward that they're floating witches at the same time, although there's there's a more overlap than you might think between. I was shocked by the overlap. I was. Like Byron and, and Benjamin Franklin and stuff are already swimming, and yet they're still floating witches in some places. So it, it dies hard, but eventually it becomes ridiculous. Like swimming can't be both cool and uncool at the same time. And so they end up, they give up floating witches reluctantly. And uh, and they start to think of swimming as, I use the word shibboleth in the book, and then people mm -hmm. have criticized it and said they don't know what a shibboleth is. So let me just explain. A shibboleth is in the Bible. I forget where exactly in the Bible, but they're fighting a, a battle. And uh, they're trying to tell a lot of the, the defeated enemy are pretending to be Israelites. And the Israelites realize that they can distinguish who's really an Israelite from who's not by asking them to say the word shibboleth, which only the Israelites can pronounce properly and they, the other people say sibboleth because they, they can't pronounce it. And so a shibboleth is a way of telling who's on your team. Um, and swimming makes a terrific shibboleth, which is why I used the word, because it's something that's both difficult to learn, like you can't learn it quickly and you can't fake it. So if you don't know how to swim and you're listening to this and you're tempted to think, well, probably if I jumped in the water, I would figure it out. Don't do that. That is a terrible idea. You will no, not yeah, figure yeah. it out. You will drown. <laughs> so... <laughs> and a surprising number of young American men die this way every year. They think, oh, you know, my friends all jumped out of the raft and they, they started swimming. And probably if I jump out, I know I can't swim, but I'll probably figure it out. Uh, no, you won't. You'll drown. So um, it's a great way to tell who grew up upper class because only the people who grew up upper class and learned how to swim will be able to swim. 
like reading, right? That's why Plato associates the two in his proverb, uh, people who can't read or swim. Reading and swimming are two things which are difficult to learn and impossible to fake. And which you can do, you know, stark naked if you just washed up on the land of the Phaeacians like Odysseus and you're hiding in the bushes while Nausicaa does her laundry, you, even naked, you can prove that you are a member of the upper class by swimming and by reading. We don't really know if Odysseus knows how to read, but we know he knows how to swim. And, and um, then as your book shows, I mean, one of the things that elites and, you know, the colonizing forces do is they take over all the spaces <laughs> for swimming. Right. So what happens is, then they're forced, you know, they've already been faced with this problem, like you can't really be drowning women for witchcraft and also think that swimming is really cool. But as more people start swimming, they also come across, you can't really be saying that swimming marks people as not human and suitable to be enslaved. And at the same time, that it's the cool new activity that everyone is doing. And again, those two ideas overlap for longer than than you might mm -hmm. think. But eventually, in the late 19th century, they really reach a point where so many white people have taken up swimming that it's just untenable to pretend that also swimming is something that marks you as, uh, as subhuman. And uh, they, they do, they make an effort to distinguish scientific swimming of white people from animal-like swimming of indigenous people, right? Where, the, and, and that's one of the things that makes it take so long to adopt the crawl is that uh, the brushstroke begins to represent natural, uh, sorry, scientific swimming, swimming that you've learned maybe from books with lessons, uh, you wear a, an official bathing suit and a bathing cap and you swim at approved beaches with lifeguards. There are a lot of rules. Um, that makes you a scientific swimmer and white. But if you swim, um, you know, just at, at, uh, in the local swimming hole, naked, and you just learned alongside the other kids when you were a kid, uh, that makes you, you're, you're swimming in an animal-like way that makes you, identifies you as subhuman in their scheme of things. But that, even that sort of becomes not enough to distinguish. They really want to make sure that swimming is something just for the upper class. And then what they start doing is segregating first beaches in South Africa in the late 19th century, and then quickly all over the world, people start segregating beaches and swimming pools. And especially as, uh, as they start, they stop segregating by gender and saying that women swim at this beach and men swim at that beach. If they, men and women are going to want to swim together as, as a social activity, then they really don't want white women swimming with black guys. And that becomes a big issue. And uh, at that point, all the pools are segregated and all of the indigenous swimmers are pushed out of the water. Not all of them, but a lot of them are pushed out of the water. Yeah, in some ways, um, 
you know, reading reading the book, it does kind of end with a little bit of a bummer, <laughs> which is that it does. <laughs> you know, I, it's something I really felt bad about. I was like, you know, I've got this great book and it tells this great story, and then the end is terrible, really awful. <laughs> no, you, you do you do leaven it with all of these amazing uh, facts. Uh, as I, I was really, we talked about this a little bit earlier, but I was astounded to to read about, you know, the prevalence of the crawl as, as the first stroke of education, or uh, the breaststroke is the first stroke of swimming education in most of Europe. Like that to me um, just blows my mind because it's so much more difficult. Uh, to, to Right, but it's calmer. It doesn't splash. It's scientific. Yeah. And, and just having a daughter, like I was saying, in swimming right now and how much time it takes to teach them to turn their head um it is something you really can't fake like it's really a struggle for these kids to learn how to do it but then when they do do it all of a sudden they're turning their head and they're just swimming and swimming and swimming like lanes and lengths of the pool the whole time and you're like wow now they get it and they can really swim um in a, in a, in a different way but um yeah it, <laughs> i was shocked but the end of the book i I was kind of hoping in the end you'd tell us there's a possibility of decolonizing swimming, bringing back indigenous practices. Tell me there's a future for swimming. Just <laughs> I, I would love for there to be a future for swimming where we talk to the people who still are swimming in that indigenous way where it's a natural part of people's social life and not a class issue. And and learn from them how to swim the way people, the way most of the world swam until, you know, 150 years ago. Uh, it hasn't been that long. There were still places in the world where people swim that way. There were still uh, Australian, uh, Native Australian people who swim that way. And um, I think it, it should be possible for them to lead a, a re- rehabilitation of swimming uh where we could maybe overcome all these problems but uh i would love to see that happen i mean me me too me too and maybe um you know then i'll learn learn again to be uh a better a better swimmer a, a better um you know more just more comfortable with myself in the water you know mm -hmm. i think for all Right. And not, you know, not necessarily just limiting swimming to something that we do as lessons when we're children and then as exercise when we're adults. Right. I was just at the pool a couple of days ago and like, you know, there must have been, I don't know, 30 people swimming in the water, but they were all swimming laps. Right. None of us exchanged so much as a smile. Yeah. Right. Because everyone is just swimming back and forth, back and forth, doing their laps. You know, would it not have been just as good exercise and more fun for us to play a game? Yeah, yeah. Or, you know, on the other hand, people who use the beach, as you as you call, I think you use the word waiter in the book, <laughs> you know, who basically <laughs> just use the water a little bit, but actually don't swim at all because they're too afraid to leave um, the water that they can't touch the bottom in. Yeah, I was just, uh, I took my, my niece and nephews to the beach at the dunes in um, uh, Indiana, just outside Chicago. You probably sure, know. Sure, yeah. 
And and they had buoys up to prevent you from swimming out of your depth. Like the lifeguards were like, it's not allowed to swim where you can't touch the bottom. You couldn't go in more than chest deep. Hmm. That's really interesting. And I was yeah. like, that's really interesting that, that we don't allow people to swim where they can't stand. Yeah, but that's not so much a thing here in Sydney, thankfully, but um, you're talking about people drowning certainly made me think because that's uh, a feature of Sydney newspapers is drowning stories, but it's often kind of, it, 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 it would fit, fit perfectly in your book because it's often... Um, people from overseas. So that now the Sydney imagination is it's foreigners who drown because they don't know how to swim. They come over here. Yeah, well, they, that's probably not wrong. I well, mean, I think Sydney, yeah. Sydney yeah. does have a lot of strong swimmers and yeah. immigrants do drown, but it also partakes of this very ancient fear that, or this very ancient feeling that swimming is a way that we distinguish one class of people from another class of people. Absolutely. And you kind so of marginalizes immigrants. Yeah. You mentioned in your, in your book, or you didn't name it, but you mentioned the Cronulla riots. So Australian listeners, you know, would be familiar with that. Well, thank you so much for uh, joining me, uh, Karen. It's really been a pleasure. I have one last question that I always ask people and um, you shouldn't feel like it has to be a sport thing because it might not be, but do you have any, do you have any upcoming projects that you want to let people know are, are in the pipeline? so to speak. I do. I'm so glad you asked. I'm, I'm right, really excited about my next book, which is not at all about swimming or sport, but it is, again, trying to decenter uh, Europe in the same way that the swimming book does. It, I call it a feminist history of money, or if you look at it the other way around, it's a history of the economics of gender. I'm arguing that early money was mostly shells and beads and trade cloth, all of which were mostly associated with women, and then women themselves also serving as a kind of large denomination money. Um, and then when, you're, when Europe starts to sell silver for coins in classical antiquity, the argument is that they market that silver as, as masculine money, as being men's money. And the beads and cloth that have been serving for money up to that time, uh, they marginalize as women's nonsense and foreigners' nonsense. And, you know, women are obsessed with shopping and fashion, but real money is made of silver. And, and again, I think it's amazing how much of that Roman marketing effort we still live with today, the idea that women are foolish fashionistas, even as women remain enslaved all over the world to make the clothing that we actually wear. That sounds like it's going to be a fascinating book. And I have some colleagues who are, um, who are, who do a lot of work on kind of Roman antiquity shopping, uh, commercial spaces. So I know that they'll be very keen to read it and I'll definitely be hearing about it. I'm sure. I'm sure it'll be with the university of Liverpool press and hopefully in, I don't know, maybe not too much more than a year from now. Oh, that's awesome. Well, thank you so much for uh, joining me, Karen. Thank you for having me. I had a great time. We've been uh, speaking with Dr. Karen Carr, who is an associate professor emerita at the Department of History at Portland State University and is the author of 
the book we just spoke about, Shifting Currents, A World History of Swimming, which is out with Reaction Books in 2022, so pick up a copy. She's also the author of Vandals to Viscos, Rural Settlement Patterns in Early Medieval Spain, and she is an area specialist in Roman pottery and works at the Leptominus site in North Africa. Thank you again for joining us, uh, Karen. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, I am Keith Rathbone. I'm coming to you uh, from Sydney, uh, from Macquarie University. And uh, everyone have a great day. Thank you very much. Thank you.